yeah, I, I learned that um, you had to challenge your own preconceived notions of the world to be better. And so I did that and it came through education, I guess. So teaching once again became even more important because I could empower and impart knowledge. Yeah. Hello, my name is Toby Kent and welcome to Moments of Clarity. Today, I'm speaking to Matthew Sortino. Matt is a teacher, an educator in the truest sense of the word, and perhaps most significantly in this context, the founder of this podcast. I had the privilege of guest hosting Moments of Clarity, as Matt features as its guest for this, his 50th episode. Fundamentally, the aim of this first incarnation of Moments of Clarity was to explore the alignment of values and actions. So Matt and I do just that. We discussed jumping in, stepping back, dedication, religion, passion and belief. We learn about Matt's upbringing, and we meet Barney, an important character in Matt's life, but one to whom he had to say farewell. Perhaps most excitingly, we learn about Matt's own moment of clarity, as he wraps up this first half century. I really enjoyed this conversation with Matt, and I'm sure you will too. You can find or follow Moments of Clarity via moc-pod.com and on all major pod streaming platforms. Thank you for listening. Please share the pod with friends, family and colleagues and via social media. But for now, without further ado, Matthew Sortino. So Matt, this is uh, an interesting time. It's uh, the end of the year. It's uh, the beginning of new things. Uh, and it is episode 50 of Moments of Clarity. You and I had a conversation going back a few months now about how you thought you might want to evolve um, what's been a really intriguing and at times exciting undertaking with moments of clarity and it seemed like the perfect time with episode 50 upon us or upon you to actually get some of your reflections so I mean let's just start with that some of your reflections moments of clarity wow 50 episodes it's amazing it really is I feel pretty good about that if I have to describe it I'd be proud of it and why am I proud because there's been many moments along the way that I thought this might be too hard or, or is this worth it that sort of critic in your mm. you know, that critic's uh, voice in your head all the time but I've really enjoyed it I guess some key reflections are how inspired I am through conversation I'd say that on a personal note every time I have a conversation with someone, I feel revitalized, renewed, and ready to take on the next period of time, whatever it may be. In terms of my reflections upon my impact on others, I've had some really rich and meaningful discussions with people about what they've taken from these chats and, and what they've learned from some great people. So that really, you know, kept me going and making yeah. it want to continue. But the people that I've found and spoken to what it's shown me is that we have many more great people in the world than bad. We've got many people that want to make a difference and really push to to get out of the, the comfort, a mindset of just comfort and actually really pushing to the next stage. So, so my reflections are that life is about aligning those values and actions which I, I sort of wanted to explore but it's really come to a fore that it isn't a part-time job to do that you have yeah. to really commit and you have to commit in in every way personal life and um and professional life that doesn't mean not having fun not being playful not having a joke and a laugh and a you know letting loose occasionally um because that can be part of the the joy of life but what what i've learned and what i reflect on often is just that when i feel like hiding away in a cave and, and running away and just doing my own thing because seems too difficult to uh to deal with in terms of the the external stuff i'm talking about the societal stuff not, yeah. not my own journey it it's sort of not the way forward the way mm -hmm. forward at least for me is to keep pushing and pressing and doing more and being more because those around me that i am inspired by are doing that and and what they are is being and doing not just uh -huh. saying they, yeah. they're actually living it so that's my reflections basically come down to that I'm just sort of, as you say all that, because to kind of dig a bit deeper, 
when, when, when Moments of Clarity began, your very, very first sort of episode zero stroke episode one was really focused on values. That came through really clearly. Uh, and, you know, you're wanting to understand the world and society specifically. But I'm just wondering what has changed in sort of that undertaking in the beginning where you, you started with something of a hypothesis mm. and you've kind of, it sounds like you've ended up in a sense, proving that hypothesis. But I'm also, when I listen to the beginning of Moments of Clarity and episodes 46, 47, and, and so forth, there's also been a change. So I'm wondering what's kind of, what you did discover, not, not just confirming your suspicions, but one of some of the surprises or what changed for you as well. Oh, there's, there's so much that's changed Within and without and outside of the podcast itself, but yeah, as you as you said, values was the first word of episode zero. You know, values what it what it means, and I truly believed and and still do that what underpins our relationship with others in the world and ourselves uh, should be our values, mm-hmm. and that those values. One thing I have learned is that those values aren't always clear to people. You know, people say, oh, family is my number one priority or this is my number one priority, but then you actually dig in and many people are rarely actually living the life that they would if they could write the script themselves. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is not to say uh, having a go at people. My, my intention with Moments of Clarity and my intention still is to help people discover while I actually journey and discover how to actually encapsulate those values to 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 discover those values and then to actually live by those values in life so that's on that level like that hypothesis of values means means everything i realize it still does but it's not enough because you could say i really care about family and that makes you more tribal and more really scared of the other yeah you know wondering about how you deal with the where values if everyone falls back upon their values but what does that mean when the same word is interpreted differently or values may be profoundly conflicting which i think is where you were going yeah how do we given that there is that possibility how do we use values as a basis for uniting if they might also drive us apart i think the key is to then define values and it's more of a philosophical exercise that everyone sort of has to go through and i'll use an example I've had to rediscover my philosophy on individual versus collective behaviour with the pandemic and with vaccine mandates or with lockdowns or mask rules or travel bans or whatever it is as someone that would consider themselves, you know, a, a big fan of liberalism, not, not a libertarian as such but someone that wants ideas to be spoken about freely and to be challenged and critiqued without violence or or threats you know just let's put the ideas on the page no matter what they are and discover why they're right and wrong or or which elements can be taken and which ones you know need to be flagged and and removed from our political you know societal discussions so i guess when you say yeah i i believe in freedom absolute freedom all the time well do you believe in your own freedom over others do you believe in the freedom of us in australia versus those in places that are less fortunate at least economically where do we where do we stand in these positions so i'm still exploring that but yeah i've had to change saying that just just lean on your values we need more than that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and we need to actually find expertise Mm -hmm. as well i've looked back at at the philosophy and the and the the reasons why we've come to where we are as a society so i'm not great at remembering every philosopher and and um their theories or ideas but what i do do is read and listen to a lot of stuff that sinks in at times and those concepts so i'm really about we need to have checks and balances on on power but we need to have mostly a lot of people working on one thing so that there is almost collective responsibility which means that there's no um, centralized power and what i mean by that is that i i I have little trust for individuals um, making decisions for the greater good without the help of 
their society, mm-hmm. you know, pushing them in the right direction. Yeah, this is where I'm still at. I'm still at this point of, of exploring. But what I've learned from Moments of Clarity is that every single person I've talked to stopped debating things in their heads eventually and just said, no, 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 I'm going to set my mind and do and actually start doing based on what I feel is right today. So if I really am passionate about asylum seekers and refugees, I'm going to act upon that today. I'm not going to think about what's the best outcome, how do I find perfect, uh, what about if I'm wrong. You know, at the end of the day, they're human beings and people that need help right now, so I'm going to jump in and dive into that now. And I think that as a society we often try to find the loophole that gets us out of taking action often or as the individual. So, And I do that. So that's what I'm realising it's all well and good to identify your values and talk about them, but if you're not doing, what's the point? And again, I mean, across the 49 other episodes, there have been some really impressive people um, who really have done just as you said, jumped in, acted. Is there anyone or a couple who particularly stood out, particularly around that you know, acting more than thinking perhaps? Yeah, I, I've enjoyed every single podcast uh, and every single conversation I've had and, and we spoke probably off, off air about I moved from a personal connection with most guests to people that I didn't know at all yeah. and that I moved from basically having a 50-50 conversation or maybe 60-40 with me speaking a fair bit to moving towards me being much more reflective and a, and a listener and letting the, the guests talk. And I think that's because there was more expertise as I went along potentially um, and I wanted to find out information and the story of someone rather than just have a debate about a topic or a, not a debate but a discussion. But what I also found was early on it was very new to me and very special. It, it, it remained special but it became more of a formula. But I'd say the first, the first person I had on that I didn't know was episode 10 with Sherry Maddock. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I remember that being really awesome for multiple, for multiple reasons. The first one was I basically cold called and asked her to be on uh, because I'd listened to her on a podcast called 7am which is run by the Saturday paper and I heard a snippet and I said, what is this about? This sounds amazing, you know, um, her, her journey in life to get to where she is today but the fact that she's doing something very simple which is creating green spaces and giving life in the form of plants to people that have no one and nothing mm-hmm. and the benefits that comes out come out of that. And um, and the reason I, I hold that one dear is that that I, I went in. It could have gone any way and if it failed, I may have stopped moments of clarity but, but it kept me going. The second one was that Sherry was just so wholesome, so amazingly wonderful as a person. The thing that you may not realise is we did that over two nights and it worked out and but she was is different she's she's american she's from quite a sort of religious background mm-hmm. whereas i would consider myself an atheist or a very agnostic um at the very you know least um yet i found myself with her and brother harry prout in episode four religious people the two that i probably had the most connection with yeah and i've found that with many people that I used to be quite against an anti-religion growing up a Catholic and but seeing everything that's happened, being told so many lies <laughs> and the guilt and all that stuff that and then you realize, hang on, this I don't know if it's real, but so why why have you done this to me for twenty years or whatever it was? But then going back to that, there's such dedication and passion and belief in the person and, and just at whatever it costs, whatever you need to do to do the right thing you do. And if that means moving across the world if it means living you know in a small tiny place to to use all the money you've got to give to others whatever it might be yeah so i feel that the stories of people maybe giving up or sacrificing or being really courageous in the pursuit of making someone else's life better someone else that they don't necessarily even know personally Mm. they're the people that have inspired me and and made me feel the most warm and they were the early ones. And then it obviously became more of a, oh, yeah, I'm getting, you know, lots of traction here, lots of guests that I really look up to without knowing them. And so I'll, I'll ask if they want to be on it. And, it. and it was really successful. But I think that the moments 
the moment of clarity that I constantly found myself having was that I find myself in life falling into the trap of, you know, earning more money and spending more money or doing more things that possibly don't give me the nourishment that I need spiritually, even though, as I said, I'm an atheist, but spiritually um, I can't find another word for it. But they're the people that have made me, made something click and that's what I want to do. So I know I've got that sort of possibility in my teaching career to to Mm -hmm. really work with children, yet I find myself really focused on curriculum and great lessons and things like that, which I know are important. But at the end of the end of the day what matters is the relationship the the way that you actually make that child feel on the day at the end of the year at the end of their schooling so i'm in constant conflict between a life of of knowing or or understanding and and um betterment in sort of the theory versus just being there for a for a connection i guess for for a Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and that's what. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that I'm 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 exploring that for myself. But the most powerful impact on me comes from those emotional connections. Even though I'd say I'm much more intellectual than emotional in my own private life, possibly. So yeah, yeah, and, and you using that 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 was kind of your moment of clarity and just to form more. And I'm not going to let you off the hook with that. I will be coming back. For one more uh, exploration of uh, Matt Sortino, what was your moment of clarity? But before we get there, you know, for most people in one way or another, whether it's because it's something they've entirely embraced or maybe even something that they've rejected, values kind of start with family and the home and, and in other conversations we've sp- certainly spoken about the importance of family in your life and so forth. So... What are you, as somebody who so clearly, you know, and arguably teaching as a career is a values-driven choice and profession. So give your listeners, you know, as, as, as I say, this, this opportunity to reflect. I mean, how did Matt Sortino get to be a teacher? How did you be so important that values were at the centre of what you do each and every day? Big question, Toby. My weakness possibly is exploring my own personal life. <laughs> and I had uh, I spoke to Franco Greco uh, recently, he recorded a podcast with me about some of my turning points and upbringing on his podcast. And I reflected on that thinking, I've never really spoken about that. I don't even know if that's 100% accurate because I haven't had a chance to think. But I'll, I'll do my best here to not say the same thing while being really genuine and authentic. Or maybe you say the same thing and discover you mean it. And if I do, because I've actually forgotten what I've said. So um, <laughs> I grew up in a family that really made family the most important thing. Not necessarily even immediate family, but extended family. Um, the role of my mum's mum as a matriarch of a big Italian family that have migrated, that have had a, a really, and I discovered this in my late teens, a really dark history in some some ways, a really troubled mm-hmm. life of, uh, I don't know if it's a typical, but a, a Sicilian grandfather figure that had never gotten over World War II, you know, and mm-hmm. what he'd experienced there and, and poverty and suffering and probably extreme PTSD and other mental challenges that came out in the form of violence, you know, with family and and, and with repression of young people that have just entered a new country or have been born speaking Italian at home and then into in a country town that was quite racist. And, mm-hmm. you know, that yeah. sort of was the, the upbringing of my parents. So they had to be very close with the Italian community, very close with religion and, and, and the Catholic faith and very, very non-trusting of others but very trusting of each other to the point where there'd always be a big argument at most you know big events but then there'd be the most joyous mediation afterwards or hugs and kisses and and you know it's all out in the open now so so for me I think a lot of my values stemmed from that um, as in on a personal level really deep and meaningful conversations were always fostered being honest and truthful and emotional was was there Um, having a lot of female like the matriarchal grandmother, that my mother is being more the um, the emotional one and my dad being the intellectual one, I'd say, and I'll go on to him soon and, and his family. But 
on that side it was a very, very female woman dominated environment that was really based on emotion and and I guess going back to that word of spirituality, there was a very much a, a magic that was possible in that. But my, my nonna, my grandmother, she was always giving. She always had someone come in the door, often people that were new in town that would just come mm-hmm. and she'd cook them a meal. Mm-hmm. She'd, you know, do something, do their groceries. She'd take them for a drive, teach them how to drive, you know, on their owls. All of this service, constant service. Um, and you realise what she'd been through in her life. I mean, even if you remove her her husband from the equation, just moving across the world with, you know, having six kids, you know, and a, and a farm in drought conditions mostly, you know, like all of Where this. were they? Swan Hill. Okay. Up, yeah. Just outside of Swan Hill. So right up um, in the Mallee, northwest Victoria on the Murray River. You know, tough life, but constantly giving all the time. And within that was sacrifice and within that was always on her end was prayer and I never really got it and I still don't but but I do because it was a way to centre and to re- remain grounded and maybe forget the horror and, and maybe mm-hmm. it was a way of res- being resilient. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was all of that and that was the emotional side of connection. And then my dad's side, similar background in terms of he was actually seven when he came to Australia, his brother who was a, another influence on me, was 13. And they were both very quiet, um, very different, the opposite. You know, only two brothers, no other relatives, stopped connecting with their Italian family, whereas my there was always that romantic outlook from my mum's side of Italy, but always a sort of a let's not talk about that from my father's side. But what they did was studied hard, both got jobs in the public service and, and both always really felt strongly about labour, about government, about, you know, the the collective action, unions, that sort of thing, was really big and strong in their minds. And for their parents, the parents, you know, 12, 15-hour days working in factories all the time. And that was that their life. But they made the most out of it in terms of their intellectual pursuits and their knowledge and reading. There was always books piled up, newspapers, mm-hmm. like The Age was always there. You know, we never saw a Herald Sun anywhere. It was always the big The Age or now it's the Saturday paper or, you know, always philosophy books and, and literature, you know, on the shelves. And so that was where that came from. And I think for me, growing up also in a working class sort of environment with a melting pot of people, I got to see what was lacking in the world. I got to mm-hmm. experience a lot of people that were – one of – I won't name anyone, but someone I do remember was a couple of people but I knew that were in public housing and I'd visit and they'd always be so amazed at my home, which I didn't think was good because other friends had much better homes than I did. But they were always like, you're so lucky. You're just so lucky to be in this place. And then I'd go to their place, which was – two rooms, you know, with four people in the one room, you know, and two bunk beds and, you know, a kitchen that was had a falling a sink falling apart or a broken window that would take six months to get fixed or and, – and always this sense of danger or knowing some people that they probably didn't want to know. You know, yeah. it was always that. And so I had that in my head as something that existed in the world. So those influences of my family, the people I grew up with and then the other people that had, you know – now a million dollars is nothing but back then you know a million dollar home with a pool and you see that part of the world and you see that that's great too like they're not evil people either you know they're Mm -hmm. they're caring too and they might even have a lion's club dinner where they do a charity night you know or something and you see all right people that give matter and then i often saw people that idolized big watches and big jewelry and big cars and and everything for glamour, glitz and all that for nothing. Like I'm not against enjoying your time well spent and doing things that you deserve to do in a thriving life. But what I saw was their dream was to get a $30,000 engagement ring followed by a holiday to Monaco every year and a Lamborghini. And that was it. No Mm. sense of service, no sense of anything. And this is all growing up. You're this is in a sense you're comparing these different people and influences. Yeah, yeah. This is. And I, I mean, I, I I think very similarly now. I'm actually going. I'm backtracking with a narrative I've currently got growing up. But I did see this, and I was always against the the group of kids that would idolise the rich and the famous and the celebrity. I've hated that all my life. 
and I was a bit of an outcast in early high school because I rejected liking that music, that celebrity, that thing because I would be outcast because if I, I because I didn't. Yeah. Um, so I got into the, the the punk scene and all of that. You know, I, I really liked the metal or the punk because it was not only more real for me with real sort of, I guess they're not real struggles um, if you think about it, but a lot of it was political. A lot of it was then also, um, you know, relationship breakdowns or whatever, but it wasn't about being famous and rich and, you know, yachts of people wearing nothing. It was about, um, you know, what I thought was real and to me at the time at least and different and mm-hmm. I was different. So I guess with the family on both sides giving me my my emotional or my personality and, and what I what I valued plus the people I met and who I connected with more and what I'd seen, I, I felt that service, I guess, mattered. Yeah. But then I'm a hypocrite and this is where the other part of oh, my life excellent. This is where the other part of my life comes from because all that's in the head and my values but I did not do that. As soon as I was able to get cool Mm -hmm. or be cool by acting, I did it like because I realised girls existed (laughs) and to get certain ones you needed to change your behaviour. So I would drink, I'd fight or or I'd swear or I'd I'd, I'd do something stupid on a train or whatever, whatever it took (laughs) to, to, to be part of a certain group. Not not completely abandoning values and so I was still a decent person I feel, but but to a point and and I was considered a a partier or mm-hmm. a, a someone that would you know look with stick with this guy you'll have fun or whatever no. you know and that sort of took me away from school like I was a pretty good student up mm-hmm. until about year nine and then I didn't care too much in in later high school and now I'm a teacher and I see that in people and I'm so upset with them and I go oh, I was the same so what am I doing? But Do I you did- ever say? Hey, I, I understand where you're at. I was like that, or is that the quickest way to switch off a student? If I go into being a teacher now, what I want to be and what is possible uh, <laughs> are two different things in the modern, really clinical, what I find at least, the clinical system of uh, not doing anything that could put you at risk of getting a negative response from someone. So I will never give away myself as a teacher. Someone's yeah. probably listening to this as a student. Um, well, let's hope someone is. <laughs> <laughs> well, a student somewhere, but one of my students potentially. But but I, yeah, I try not to give too much away. And, and going back to a question you said possibly off air, I gave a lot away as Barney on Moments of Clarity early about myself that I wouldn't do necessarily. I mean, I, I, I've done it now, but when I transitioned to Matthew Sortino... My real self, I actually stopped giving as yeah, much away. So, so tell us a bit about that because nicknames are interesting. So um, Barney certainly, as a nickname certainly sounds like it was maybe came from being those more of those party up for it days. Yeah. Uh, and so you started with that. So Moments of Clarity was started by Barney and at some point you transitioned to Matthew Sortino or Matt Sortino. I think Matthew on the... Uh, on the headline. Mm. So, so two questions. Um, where did Barney come from and why the transition as Moments of Clarity developed? Barney was that point, the turning point from being a um, a shy outcast that looked at everyone as horribly stupid, yet I was alone. <laughs> I, was, I had my big family, so I didn't care too much, but... Yeah. I had my big family and family friends that I connected with um, all the time, weekends and holidays and whatever. And then I had my Nintendo for during the night at home or backyard cricket with, you know, two brothers, footy, cricket, whatever. But Barney was my nickname given to me in under-15s footy, Barney Rubble from the Flintstones, Barney Rubble Trouble, Barney Rubble. I looked a bit like Barney Rubble. Um you know, multiple things that, that made me get that name. But it just stuck. And yeah. all the boys I played footy with just brought it to school. And I realised, hey, these guys know me as Barney. These guys that I probably didn't know, they knew me as this that guy, now knew me as Barney. So that was me. So I just said when I went to a party, we went to someone's house, when I introduced myself, sure. I'm Barney. Yeah. And a lot of people didn't know my name. I remember a, um, a country footy club I played for. I was there doing pre-season there for a while. It was great. We had jumper presentation night and um, 
it was the you know you get your, your jumper, you're signed up, you're ready to play for the season just before the opening game. Knew these guys for a couple of months, and yeah, number seventeen, Matthew Sortino, and there were crickets. <laughs> <laughs> Who's that? Then I started walking up and like, oh Barney, Barney. So that's what how strong that name was. That people, some groups of people knew me only as Barney, and some only knew me as Matt, Matt Sortino, sorts, whatever. So that was the different crowd. But I became Barney and Barney was from that footy game to footy to parties to the external fun self. And then I had job interviews teaching. Mm-hmm. It was Matthew Sortino, you know, Matt Sortino. <laughs> um, my family called me Matt. Girlfriends always called me Matt. They always hated Barney. <laughs> <laughs> Is that because Barney was, was a bit of a troublemaker? <laughs> yeah, and they didn't want Barney to be Barney anymore. They liked Barney. They were attracted enough to be with Barney. But then once they were with Barney, Barney had to go. <laughs> Which is fair enough. So that was where Barney began and, and sort of was a – yeah, and basically the podcast, I wanted to be more Barney, I think. Mm-hmm. Because I felt I could be more real. I could say that I've tried mushrooms and I've been partying and, and a kid from school could listen and not know it's me or a potential employer. Okay. Or Sir, there's this guy Barney. <laughs> sounds really like you. Yeah, he's so cool. Um, <laughs> if only you could be more like him. Yeah, you're a loser, um, Matthew, Mr Sortino. But, um, <laughs> but this guy Barney isn't. And that's how it sort of felt. But, but I realised that maybe that wasn't really me. It was... Mm-hmm. That I, I was a hybrid. I wasn't all Barney and I wouldn't be all Barney ever. And I would also, that that fun and, and happiness without the, the danger and irresponsibility perhaps could tra- could be part of Matthew Sortino. But Matthew Sortino, me, I keep saying my name, I hate speaking in the third person. Oh, you're doing it really well. <laughs> but I'm, um, I am definitely more attracted to a life of, of, meaning and value that goes beyond individual pleasure or individual ego. And that's what I've learned over time. And Barney was an ego-driven person that I learned a lot and I've gathered great friendships and great life because of it, but it's no longer necessary for happiness. Happiness now comes from me being me and I'll still enjoy myself and be confident and have a bit of an ego, but it's more about... But I, I spend most of my time thinking about the world externally and then also about my impact on people in terms of not will they like me, but am I going to be pos- have a positive influence on them in some way? And I, I guess part of what I'm hearing is in a funny kind of way as part of being more true to yourself, you don't need an alter ego to give you the permission to have extreme fun. You can actually just kind of be yourself and have fun. So maybe there's – is there an element of just maturing and being more comfortable in yourself as well as rejecting some of the greater excesses of the – artist formerly known as Barney. Absolutely. I, I think I've said this before, but I I really needed external validation. I really needed people to see what I was doing or value what I was doing to feel like it was worthwhile. The idea of meditating four or five years ago was impossible. Like, I'm not sitting down and doing that. Um, the idea of being still or staying in a room on a Saturday night on my own or whatever was just foreign. Do you spend a lot of Saturday nights in a room on your own? I do now. Um, SBS is <laughs> less good for that these days. Um, <laughs> uh, where was I? The alter ego, I realised, was a requirement to fill some sort of void or whatever it was that we all have. And I realised that I had it. And this is my journey. This is why I want to share things with people. Not in a wellness, I've done it and you can do it too. Not in, mm-hmm. not in that, but just Why? Challenge my fear, challenge my my vulnerabilities, challenge all those bits of me that I'm a bit afraid of, a bit don't want to admit to or, you know, I was always defensive. You know, someone would say, you know, apologize. why? Why would I apologise? Now I'm like, of course I'll – like, I mean, if I believe it. <laughs> but I'm more likely to believe that I've done something to offend or hurt potentially and even if I don't feel it, if they feel it, that's enough for me. Whereas back in the day there was no chance of that. And I feel that – my stillness and ability to reflect on me and my impact and who I was and all of that came from two um, – there was a few events, travelling. Mm-hmm. Travelling was definitely one and moving out and doing all the things that help you mature anyway and see the world in a, in a more global sense. But 
I broke my I, – I did my Achilles. I didn't snap it but I was out of action for a good while. No. It was impossible. I felt like I was never going to find a cure. <laughs> like I um, was in a moon boot and then I had injections and then they did, you know, different physio and then all, th- you know, all this stuff but I couldn't play sport which was my outlet and the thing that I felt happy doing, you know. And then I was in a moon boot all the time and then I travelled and I like realised I couldn't get out of this moon boot. And then I had an operation and it was over summer and that was a moment where I realised I'm upstairs. I can't leave whenever I want. I can't get around and do the things that you do in summer anymore. I'm going to be sitting for six weeks on my own basically um, unless some sympathiser comes over and sits on the couch with me for a while, you know. And I just played football manager on on the computer and I took my team to the Premier League from League Two. Um, (laughs) And I was proud of that. Um, But I realised what a waste of time. What a waste of time. And then I said, I've always wanted to write or learn an instrument and I'm spending my time doing this rubbish or Mm. why? What am I doing? So then I started to think that. Then I got better and then... So the Achilles got better or you got better? The Achilles, the Achilles. So I realised all this stuff and I'd went through my little depression. Actually, the year before that, I'd gone through a pretty dark space in my well-being. Mm -hmm. I couldn't be – I wasn't happy for about a year. Right, yeah. Like I was – a quarter-life crisis. And it was due to a bit of being injured. I left social media and social media was my a bit of an outlet for me to say things that I wanted and feel validated and mm-hmm. stuff. I'd, I'd stopped going to as many parties. I'd, I'd worked harder. I'd, I'd There was lots of things that were going on. I'd also mixed my finances with my now fiancé that's about to be, you know, wife and, and um, I've got a child with and all of that. But there was the point where I realised I wasn't Barney anymore. Yeah. I wasn't independent anymore as such. I was now... That was that was done, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I did go to Europe one last time. So is this what took you into the dark space, or this is what? No, that was part of the dark space. That was part, of, even yeah. though it was incredible, and and obviously I've got a better life than ever before because of all of that. I think I hit a point where everything around me was, all my understanding of what life was was shifting at the same time as my life was actually shifting. Mm-hmm. So the external and internal, personal and society, you know, societal, my impact was all coming to a head where a lot of the narratives that I'd been taught were a bit bullshit. You know, work, get your dog, tick all these boxes and you'll be very happy and fulfilled. Have this X amount of money and, and this car paid off and this and you'll be happy. And then also, you know, meet the person and, and whatever. And I said, I don't know. And then also climate change and, mm-hmm. and politics, you know, all the external stuff. I was like, we're told to just do some really easy, simple stuff of just going from A to B. You know, get from A to B and you'll be right, which is not easy for everyone and everyone's got a different background. But I felt privileged enough to be at a position where it was easy but it wasn't fulfilling. And so no. I think I got to a point where some, there has to be something more in this and I went into the darkness and came out of it with an intention to, to be better. <laughs> to be better as a person and as my impact on the world. And, and and it coincided with the injuries. So I did write, I did read, I did learn things. I started singing lessons and guitar and and talking to people on the phone for a period of time and not just drink with them and forget but getting to know them, the deep and meaningfuls, the the really getting into literature and, and really in-depth intellectual expertise. You know, really I want to know... I know climate change exists and what is it? So I read books about the science of it, the impact of it, the the societal, you know, what's happening in um, Africa, for example, or what's happening even on the Great Barrier Reef. All of these things coming together saying that I can empower myself with knowledge, I can really connect with people and I can write and reflect and meditate and be alone and that's actually more fulfilling for me than this previous state of constant busyness, constant striving for personal recognition or mm-hmm. or to get to the next bit. So this is my journey to get to moments of clarity. I realised, hey, I, I want a voice yeah. but it needs to be with purpose. But there's, I mean, there's an interesting thing because when you were talking I had assumed this was the maturing of Barney, the exiting of Barney perhaps and 
that may be part of the realization led you to teaching and so forth. But you were already a teacher by then. So this, you were to your point about you know having the job and the car and and so forth. So there was a clear element of I'm assuming there's an element of service and and giving and so forth that led to you, you wanting to become a teacher. So because there's. Mm. And there is a correlation between or similarities between what you've tried to do through moments of clarity and being, if not a specific teacher, at least an educator. Mm. So why did you become a teacher? Yeah, I had a couple of great teachers and I think it came down to that, that there were a couple of great ones that I remember and many ones that weren't great and I felt that they let me down mm-hmm. as, a, as a young person with potential, although I say that I was the person that, stopped wanting to learn and wanting to I, – I, I sort of did that because I wasn't feeling fulfilled in learning. I didn't feel that it was giving me what I needed. You know, what's the point of this score at the end of it when you're not really teaching me, you're telling me all this pressure, whatever, you know. So I had that. And I didn't want that to be the case for other mm-hmm. young people. No. So my intention was to be a good teacher for someone <laughs> or many people. Because teaching isn't just learning how to read and write. It's learning how to engage with the world. It's learning... You often find, like, some of my favourite interests, some of my interests came from certain teachers being interested in something and, and, yeah. and sharing their interest with the class. And then I'd, I'd jump on that. So, so really, my, my intention with being a teacher actually started off with a primary, as a primary teacher, was just being fun, caring and, and making sure there was a smile on every kid's face when they entered the room and when they left. And when they left, that's an important And when they <laughs> left. Well, more importantly, when they left. Um, and that was more important for me than, you know, getting them, although I cared about their learning. Actually, I care about their learning enough to, to realise that if you're not smiling, you're probably not interested in learning. You need to do that first. Totally. Yeah, that makes sense. And so, listen, I don't want to dwell on this, but I think one of the things that has been so interesting about Moments of Clarity has been your ability to help people reflect on their moments of darkness, their challenge, and you know, and how they've come out of it. And so I'm interested just in this point around your dark period. You were a teacher by that point. And so how did a teacher whose real goal was to bring a lightness and joy to the teaching, balance the personal pain, depression, with that giving uh, of lightness. And, and did you manage it? Was, it? was there, did it make it more profound, that pain more profound, because you were giving in other ways? Mm. It probably did. You're an actor when you're a teacher. Mm-hmm. You're not really authentic, so you have to switch on. Mm-hmm. Um, switch off from your life and switch on to what you're there to do. So some people do that better than others. I reckon I'm pretty good at being a chameleon and um, shape-shifting when I need to. Not, I'm not a lizard for those conspiracy theorists out there. Um, <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> Though the fact that I said that could mean that they, they now think I am. Um, <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> Episode 50. Uh, so... You have to act. You have to be a certain character. And I was always in character as a teacher. You know, I didn't let it overcome me. But I did on the way to school or on the way home that it would just all flood in again. Like it wouldn't go away. And um, I've got so much support. Lauren's amazing. Um, My friends are amazing. Family, you know, everyone's amazing. And uh, there was no reason for this to happen and I guess it happens to anyone and it can be anything but I was quite anxious um wasn't wanting to hang around with people as much just wanted to talk about the same thing that I couldn't quite get for so long like why why are we doing this why do we live this way it was basically that it was more an existential crisis which I sort of had as a teen a little bit but I got over it and then it really hit me hard to say you know I'll be dead one day or too old to do whatever or I could be run over tomorrow you know whatever and and what what have I done what have I done (laughs) like what that I'm proud of I mean I've done a lot of things but is it okay to say that because I saw the Leaning Tower of Pisa and the Colosseum and I don't know the Berlin Wall and I ticked them off and then got drunk afterwards is that really experiencing life maybe so that was my, my my thing that 
I, I'd had this work that I, I was working hard, you know, getting up at six, preparing, getting to work, doing the job that I was acting and probably didn't feel like I was having a much of an impact as much as I'd like. I, I did because I know that students come back and, you know, yeah. but you don't realise that until the, the end of the year basically. And then I'd do my chores and walk the dog and try to go to the gym and, you know, whatever. And then and I was a bit injured so everything was hard. And then I'd realised like what what is the purpose of getting up and going to sleep and nothing really happening except difficult things just so you live longer like what's the point so that was my 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 that was the mindset but the part of that that I, I looked through was that I and I've got a few visualizations one is on a you're on a river and the river's taking you and you're in a little donut or something or on a life jacket and you're just getting taken and that's it you know where the end point is and it's comfortable it was fine everything was good I had everything I needed but is that what I wanted in life, just to, to meander through mm-hmm. this stream and that was it? I wanted to get off that and, and take the life jacket off and swim to the – make it to the shore and then explore or swim against the top, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like that was mm-hmm. one image. And the other one was like entering a dark tunnel of – like a quest of darkness through the darkness. And I realised at one point that I could just accept life as this – the status quo – everything's fine, you know, don't worry about other things. If it's too hard, if it's too scary, if you're worried about this, you know, two million people dying of famine or whatever, don't worry. You've got a roof over you. Just just think about you and, mm-hmm. you, you you know, you've got the girl, you've got the car, you've got the thing. Buy yourself something nice and forget it for a while and then buy something again and then throw it out and buy it again. And, <laughs> and that was like, do I want to do that? I said no. So I actually embraced the journey through my fears, my vulnerabilities, my conditioning, my my trauma, whatever it was that life gave to me. And so, yeah, so that's where I ended up. And 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 teaching was happening around that. I didn't really think too much about it. But, yeah. like, I actually asked for, for three weeks off from it and I was saying, like, I'll, I'll either quit if you say no or you say yes and I stay. And they said, of course you can. Like, yeah. And I went and I felt better for letting go because then I realised life was pretty good. Everything was pretty good. I don't need to travel the world. I don't need to be a backpack. I don't need to be Barney again. Mm -hmm. So that was the death of Barney, that trip, because I didn't – I actually preferred what I had and I realised there was a – it wasn't the Barney um, that was missing that I – that mattered. It was the purpose, meaning, those moments of clarity coming to the fore, aligning my beliefs with my – what I did actually mattered and that's when I started – being more self-actualized or mm-hmm. being more, um, oh, you want to do that? Do it. No. Just put yourself in for singing lessons. Go down to the racetrack and start running and doing laps. You know, do yoga if you're too stiff and sore. You know, meditate if you, your mind's too active and you want to explore your deeper, you know, consciousness. You know, listen to podcasts all the time if you want to learn instead of watching sport then falling asleep on the couch or, you know. No. That, that's how I learned that I needed to actually challenge the easy things and not blame others and society for my issues and say that, no, 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 we're in a pretty good world. If you want to be better, you can do it. Some people are in different scenarios, but I was at a point where it wasn't the medical profession's fault that my foot wasn't healing. I wasn't really doing what they were saying to do to heal. Yeah, right. You know, um, it wasn't that teaching is not fulfilling, I wasn't putting in the stuff that I thought I was getting away with being good at certain aspects and just sticking to that. There were areas I could change. If me, if social media is making you depressed because you're clicking on all these outrageous posts and yelling back at someone, you know, in the comments because they're, they're disgusting, is that really helping me? Like, no. So, yeah, I, I learned that um, you had to challenge your own preconceived notions of the world to be better and so I did that and it came through education I guess so teaching once again became even more important because I could empower and impart knowledge yeah and part of that was also then the creation of moments of clarity absolutely Mm. so you tackled your existential crisis by setting up a podcast which in your own words was to help understand yourself and the world around Mm. us so it was like two negatives making a positive two Mm. existential crises informing yourself and uh and many happy listeners 
I hope so. Yeah. And then, and then on that, I've now come to a point where there is no external change without internal change. There is no making things better around you without making yourself better. Not an external notion of you, you being better, an internal notion of being better. And and that means that's when you have to find your values. That's where you have to strip everything back and almost become vulnerable again, like knock down this wobbly house that you're not too – like you just have to sometimes go back to the bones and, and do it again. And that's hard. And and some people – and I, I see patterns. One person I know, I won't name, but I always thought far out. This guy just goes home after a big day's of work and clicks online poker until he falls asleep and then does it again. Again, lovely person. But I'm like – don't you feel like you should be doing more? Like not even for others, just for yourself. Like mm-hmm. surely you've got desires and but but you you fall into this trap and I've seen it with lots of middle-aged people that actually gave me that existential crisis. Like am I going to be the person on the couch wishing I did things differently mm-hmm. and constantly pushing it away with distractions? No, I, I can't do that because that, that's just what's the point? And, and that's the internal battle of being more. And then you actually realise that, yeah, you could almost perfect, you could do your ultra, it's all great, but is there a purpose of it without maybe realising, like that gives you strength and empowerment and a happiness that then allows you to be better, to even if it's just more presence with your kids or a better boss or it doesn't have to be world, world change of hunger. It can simply be being kind. That was one of your moments of clarity on your episode. Was I think it was um, Toby, mm-hmm. but yeah. being kind is not the norm. I don't feel in a big city walking through the daily life. It should be. It, it it doesn't take much. So so why aren't we there? And I think it's the the there's a a the personal humanity is broken. I'm going to put this out there with a a lens of being corrected, perhaps by many people, but. And maybe wanted to refine it with a reflection. But the world is, I feel, is broken and humans, people, have lost their way. This is my contention. (laughs) This is my hypothesis. And because of that, we have extreme tribalism. We look for things that give us our buzz, give us our energy, give us this thing. And often we look in places that are quite dangerous. And and then we, we are potentially caught up in more extreme ideals you know, whether it's violent, whether it's dogmatic or we're numb and we just don't care and we just become some sort of parasite, mm-hmm. you know, because we just like stuff it. Like I deserve this. I work hard. I do – like I'm going to do this. And if it hurts someone else, who cares? And that's going back to this pandemic. All of those thoughts were suddenly both confirmed and denied with – with the reaction of the world during this pandemic, there were many good things that I saw and many things that I've, I'm terrified of from what I've seen. And I think that Moments of Clarity started just before this hit and Yuval Noah Harari was one of my big influences in thinking mm-hmm. and about the narrative, the story, the as well as Jared Diamond and a few other people, Sam Harris. And these people changed my way of thinking and then I challenged my way of thinking and then I ended up having to live it out through my podcast and life and and all that while the world was different yeah. and um yeah it's been an interesting little journey yeah and I mean, one of my reflections on moments of clarity is that it has pretty much tracked the pandemic in terms of kind of when it started when the pandemic started to get really serious and in a funny way it's been quite refreshing listening to it because there were one or two episodes that were quite focused on it. But on the whole, uh, it's been a kind of buzz in the background rather than a, a real focus, uh, I, I would argue. And is that something, I mean, obviously for you it's been part of taking you out of yourself. H- has the coronavirus, COVID-19, what are your thoughts on how it has, as it were, infected moments of clarity? It was a big thing and it was often discussed and I, I threw out an eight-minute little thing, like reflection on it yeah. at the start. Not that I'm an expert, but just some thoughts. But I realised I wasn't an expert. Not the first person who's not an expert to share a few thoughts on the coronavirus. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and, and what I was trying to do was basically saying, I don't know and you don't know either. Listen to the experts yeah. and find the right experts because now this word expert is bandied around but now we have to 
somehow be an expert on who the experts are because there's so much rubbish around. <laughs> That's one thing I realised. But I deferred to the experts that I trusted and I remained trusting in those with a track record that you could trust and those with a, a history and those with checks and balances. And usually the, there's the World Health Organisation, for all its mistakes, has a lens on it from every single country and body and institution and government from no matter what part of the political spectrum. When they stuff up, it's highlighted and when they're doing well, it's just like move on. You know, we don't see that and we don't see that from all the areas. So moments of clarity, I tried to avoid making it the focus of anything because people were sick of talking about it and listening about it. I was talking about it a lot with people and I was sick of talking about it and hearing about it. And, yeah, I wanted an escape and I wanted others to have an escape from it. And I also feel that the best way to connect with people and for people to reflect on things is not by pointing out their anxiety and and focusing on their anxious moments but to, to maybe say, oh, you know, collective action matters in this situation. Maybe I can make that connection that it matters in, you know, pandemic as well, you know. Yeah. yeah, that's 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 where I. But uh, tracking the pandemic has been interesting. I'd love to listen back, you know, in twenty years' time and remember, reminisce. Yeah. And and so as we move to that, thinking about looking back to, to that point about you know in twenty years' time and 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 as we kind of move to wrapping up. But you know, right at the outset, you said that you felt there was an imperative that in this time of global challenge, imperative that I add my small and at times solitary voice to the chorus. And, and certainly it seems that you have done that uh, in, in many, many ways and some of which are quite uplifting. I'm going to come back, though, again to the question that you've asked all of your guests. As you reflect upon your time creating, leading moments of clarity, what has been your one particular moment of clarity? The thing I've learnt that has become clear to me from moments of clarity is is that episode zero and my monologue hasn't changed to now. I'm pretty insignificant. I'm pretty small. Even if I become the biggest name in the world somehow, I'm still insignificant. Like that doesn't change things because I'm one person in one tiny part of history. But we're also super powerful and have agency and have a requirement to use whatever power you've got. It might be to help your sibling out of a really horrible home situation. And that is it. Or or for you just to simply survive a year in a horrible place or whatever. But whatever you have the power to do, you have a... a, a, It's almost mandatory to do it is my moment of clarity. But almost everybody believes that of others and very rarely of themselves. We, We put the captain of the Australian cricket team at a higher pedestal than we do ourselves they're not better than me I'm not better than them I never will be and they never will be they're better at cricket (laughs) but but they're not better you know a politician that we say oh you you know looked up at the wrong time and so you've got to go it's a hard job but there's also we can give them slack with certain things but then there's also an imperative that they can't just abandon values and what their requirement is as service to the people because of money interests or lobbyists or whatever so i'm i'm of this this idea that we can't be constantly looking to blame others and destroy people and just cancel people and whatever we do while also realizing that we do need to hold ourselves up to a higher standard mm-hmm and of an equal to an equal standard that we would expect of the prime minister your family your principal school kids school principal down the road whatever we need a, a more of a an equalizer in life and i feel that that comes down to removing these ma- tools of manipulation and, and fear and hate mongering from our lives but it's not going to happen without people changing first it it all starts from within nice mm Matt Sortino, thank you very much for allowing me to be the guest host today. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as all of your guests have enjoyed you being the interviewer. And um, congratulations, 50 50 episodes of Moments of Clarity. Quite an achievement. 
Thanks, Toby. Thanks for doing this. Um, it's been a pleasure. If you enjoyed the conversation today, please subscribe, share with your friends and family and leave a review. If you would like to contact me, provide feedback or have access to someone you believe would be a great guest on the podcast, you can contact me on Instagram or Facebook at Moments of Clarity Podcast or on Twitter at BarneyMOC. You can also email me on momentsofclaritypodcast at gmail.com. Once again, thank you for joining me on Moments of Clarity.